0: All right, so Terry, how are you? I'm doing just fine today. Uh, well, thanks for being here with me. I think that you have um, a really interesting role, and I kind of, I guess my goal in this conversation is to figure out you know, how, you, how you eventually um, ended up there, but then also kind of some of the things that you've learned along the way. So in terms of being the head, because you are the head of Avery Classics, Drawings, and Archives, and this is um, you know, Avery Library at Columbia, which is the largest architecture library in the world. So uh, I guess right off the bat, maybe we should start there. I mean, when you first took on this role, um, was there anything that sort of surprised you? Was there something that you didn't quite expect? Because you had um, worked at Avery as a curator previously. So was there something kind of new that may have caught you off guard or, or something that you kind of learned, um, you know, as you took the role? Or was, it, or was it pretty similar to what you had in mind, um, you know, in your in your previous role?
1: Sure. Um,
2: so Part of what I need to explain maybe is that I was curator, but I was always head of the rare book department. Mm. And so as of February, with some staffing transitions, I was made head of both departments. Right. I'm also doing the interim curator role for drawings and archives while we hire someone new oh to wow. fill that role. So it's a s- in many institutions, special collections aren't separated out into books and drawings and archives. Mm. It's a kind of artifact of the history of the building and the collecting okay. practices there. So if you go up to the sixth floor rare book and manuscript um, library everything's combined wow which is just to say that books are very different from archives and drawings but the management of them is not all that dissimilar Um, Hmm. there's a lot of the same practices of organization and making it available to people that are the same so i think i don't know if i have anything particularly illuminating to add um just that it was Kind of transferring those management right. skills of similar materials
1: to a
0: new department. Um, yeah. When you think about libraries in general, mm-hmm. I mean Marcus Cicero, who was like an elder Roman statesman, basically said that if you have a garden and a library, you have everything you need. Mm-hmm. Do you still find that that's the case? Because I think of libraries now. I mean, they're very much different. Especially, um, I, th- I feel like there's a pre-internet paradigm to libraries, um, at where you know you weren't able to necessarily access databases electronically, especially as easily as you can now, and then a post, which we're kind of living in, um, do you find that the role and the purpose of libraries in general has changed throughout the years?
2: Yeah, and from my point in special collections, I might not be the best person to ask this actually because we're still so focused on the analog. Mm. Um, We do a lot of digitization in order to improve access or for preservation purposes, but a lot of the materials that I deal with are very rare and or unique, yeah. and so the physical object and the necessity for that physical object is still quite important. Um,
0: was, uh, that, was that kind of always what you drew you in in terms of um, you know, the rare, kind of more like gems uh, in terms of the archives? Was that kind of what um, you know, drew you in in terms of being interested in this field?
2: A little bit. I mean, the truth is that I didn't plan to end up here. Mm. I not I don't honestly. If I when if you'd ask me when I started my graduate career, like, yeah. if this is where I was going to end up, it wasn't even on my radar because I didn't know it was a possibility. Yeah. Um, and so for me, architecture was always the thing that I was really passionate about. My first job out of college was at a small nonprofit in the city that was doing lectures and exhibitions on contemporary architecture. Mm. I then started a PhD program in architectural history, and I actually don't have a library degree. I've worked in libraries quite a bit, um, which is not as uncommon at the curator level um, in comparison to some of the other roles in libraries. But I think it was doing my dissertation and doing Mm. some serious archival work there, and then also getting a graduate internship here at Columbia, where there's a program they have every summer that was originally Mellon funded, Mm. where they pair graduate students, often in the humanities with collections in the archives that need processing that match their interests so my dissertation was on a German topic right they had a couple of German archives that nobody else in the department could process because they couldn't read the language yeah and so it was both doing my own archival research and through that internship that I realized just how much I loved working with the materials and it's There's a little bit of, you know, sometimes seeing something from the Renaissance that there's only a few copies left of. (laughs) You know, that's an amazing experience. But for me, I think it starts with, you know, I just fell in love with architecture as an undergrad.
0: Wow. Well, let's get to that. So where did you, where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in, I was actually born on a submarine base in Connecticut. (laughs) because My dad was in nuclear subs. Um, Your dad
0: was in nuclear submarines? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How At, did you exactly how do you get into that? Was he drafted or was it
2: He was ROTC. Oh,
0: wow. Yeah.
2: So, I don't I don't I don't know enough about how he ended up there. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, was service and public service kind of a big um tenant for you growing up based on having a father like that?
2: Yeah, it, I think it was just in the air. All the men of my oh, family wow. were in the military. We oh, had like every single branch represented. Oh, wow. Um, you know, my grandmother was a nurse, you know, it it just and I think my dad's family is Jewish but mm. didn't really practice. My yeah. mom's family was Catholic and there was a lot very service oriented component to what I grew up with the Catholicism. So
0: Wow. So you were born on a submarine base. Mm-hmm. So where do you where do you go after that? I mean how long are you there?
2: I mean I literally just in the hospital there. Yeah. And then my mom was living I think near base. My dad went to sea the next day after I was born. Yeah. Um and then the majority of my childhood was spent in a little town outside Allentown, Pennsylvania. After my dad had gotten out of the Navy, um, he moved to a power company, hmm. <laughs> kind of a nuclear connection. They oh, had yeah. some nuclear plants. Although uh, he's not an engineer.
0: Right. What um, was it like? Uh, what was it like growing up there? I mean, do you? Did you discover? Because you mentioned that you are, you know, you were always very interested in architecture growing up. I mean, was there something that kind of planted the seed um, you know in Pennsylvania that kind of led you to that or was it I mean what was your growing up like?
2: It was very r- r- rural oh, slash really? suburban my suburban neighborhood was surrounded by cornfields I don't think I necessarily knew how much that interest would be ignited yeah. in college until I got there and took mm. my fir- first art history one-on-one class although I do remember for example sitting in church at like 12 and being completely bored <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> but staring at the architecture yeah. of the building so there was maybe something there I remember also this is kind of cheesy mm. but I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, novels by Ken Follett about the building of Gothic cathedrals no called Pillars of the Earth okay so I read that when I was 12 or 13. It was just like utterly fascinated with the medieval ma- guilds and masons and how they could build. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there was some kernel there, but I just hadn't really been exposed to it yeah. in any you
0: know, right. more, more formal way. Form. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, guilds, I think um, they were pretty fascinating just because... Um, it kind of shows you the power of, uh, collaboration and then also specificity kind of between one. Um, so when you were, and I, I think maybe, um, you know, you mentioned church and kind of how the, um, you know, the, the building itself or the architecture itself was so, um, you know, kind of exquisite. I think that maybe that was the purpose behind making them, making those buildings like that so that they can kind of drum our people in. Cause I think they're incredible. Have you seen any, um, churches or cathedrals that kind of, you know, uh, blew your mind in that way?
2: Yeah, um, you know, I think my first gothic cathedral was actually Salisbury in England, Mm. not a French one, like you might expect. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, just because I love architecture every time I travel, you know, I'm always the one who doesn't want to go to the museum. I want to go out into the city and see as much as I can. And I can't remember the name of it. I wish I could. But there was this amazing little Baroque chapel Mm. in Nuremberg, of all places, where all of the decorative work was metal. Wow. And it was just like this excrescence. Like it was just everywhere. Yeah. And it was overwhelming. And I wasn't sure I liked it, mm. but it made a huge impression. Wow. That, and I will say, um, I was teaching art humanities for a while. And so of the first time I went to Rome, I went to actually see some of the Bernini chapels I was teaching. And those were they were stunning in person too. Sometimes wow. things, after you know, if you build them up in your head, aren't yeah. as exciting when you actually go to see them. But that one was. But this one was the ecstasy wow. of Saint Teresa. Is amazing.
0: Um, so uh, you, so college w- was really what um, you know did it in terms of giving you this uh, idea that uh, one, architecture is a real profession and a real field, and then two, that I'm really interested in this. I mean, you went to mm-hmm. Williams, right? I did, which is widely regarded as kind of the most um, prestigious, prestigious liberal arts college. And you know, one, one on of that. them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot, but yeah. What What was that experience like in college? Um, you know, apart from that, I mean, did you did you have a lot of friends? Did you feel that your mind was kind of getting blown by different things?
2: I did. I was intending to be an English major, mm. and then you know, art history 101, 102 were something that nearly everyone took. Yeah. And I was interested in art too, so I thought, well, I'll take this class. Yeah. And they had a really strange way of teaching it, in that like in retrospect. Mm-hmm. They had two professors who had been teaching it for um, probably decades. They just had it down to a science. And unlike most surveys where they start at the beginning and go through, they did that. But they separated out the architecture and sculpture, the three-dimensional media. And then second semester started over at the beginning with painting and did painting. So they didn't integrate them, which, like I said, after having studied it a little longer, it's actually a somewhat odd choice.
0: Why do you think they did that?
2: I think it was just because those two professors, you know, they had their material down and it made sense as an arc. And I'm sure, you know, there could have been some accident of (laughs) why it developed that way. Um, But it was E.J. Johnson and Ava Gruden, and E.J. Johnson taught the architecture. Wow. And I remember just absolutely falling in love with it and just, you know, couldn't wait to see what he was going to teach about next. And Ava was also amazing, mm. but I got to the painting and I just, I liked it. I didn't love it, yeah. which was surprising to me because I just had never thought about architecture yeah. that way before.
0: Is architecture, is it fair to say that architecture kind of blends art and then also elements of science like physics? I mean, uh, is it, uh, is that, was that something that kind of appealed to you as well?
2: It was, and I don't think I would have been able to articulate it until later after grad school. Yeah. But I think it's also that it's, it can be beautiful. Sometimes yeah. Is purely decorative. But that it's also a really social art form that necessarily has a practical purpose mm. in most instances. Yeah. Um, and my dissertation ended up being more on urban planning right. and the way that that shapes social fabric. And so yeah. I think it was really that social component and the shaping of space and the impact that can have on people's like just daily lives that probably was the thing that made it more compelling to me.
0: So then in uh in college then the plan is the plan to become an architect?
2: I thought about that. Yeah.
0: Because you started off in English, right? And then you kind of And then I well I hadn't declared a major but I was
2: convinced I was going to be an English major and I took that one that class on architecture the first semester, and I never looked back. I was an art history major
0: after what that. What led to the English major interest or in the beginning?
2: Um, I mean, like so many kids, oh, I yeah. absolutely yeah. loved <laughs> to read. Okay. And it was the thing like that I, just, I always had a book in my hand, still do often. What,
0: what were the formative books, or what were the books um, that you remember from your childhood? From
2: my childhood. I mean, they're so old-fashioned at this point, but The Secret Garden. Oh, yeah. Still to this day, hmm. love that book. You know, okay. I have it. On, I have my childhood copy on the shelf, <laughs> yeah. and I, I love 19th century English fiction. And so, mm. I wasn't necessarily reading that then, but that's an English book, I believe. Now I'm yeah. not, not sure. I would have to check that. Um, yeah, and so it's something about 19th century English fiction that I just. Right. For.
0: But then you took that class, and then mm. that kind of changed your perspective on what you wanted to do.
2: Yeah, and I think part of it was. It was just a default something i had done well in in high Mm. school and really loved for the english um and i was a little bit afraid that dissecting the books the way you do would make me kind of not not as inclined yeah as much um and for some reason i i don't know why i didn't worry about that yeah but for art and architecture, it didn't feel like it was going to destroy my love for the objects. maybe
0: you weren't did you feel like maybe you weren't as um precious about it because you kind of grown up reading yeah books, but then the architecture interest was kind of spurred by that class yeah, so maybe that was a quite possibly so then what do you do after that um mm-hmm. uh, you know is uh, i mean what's your kind of what's your plan <laughs> kind of going forward in college
2: to be honest, I don't know if I had one okay yeah I mean I took as like just a huge wide range of Art history and architecture classes, and despite falling in love with that per particular professor's class, it never, w- there was one other class he taught that, in retrospect, I was like, why didn't I take that? It mm-hmm. must have not fit with the schedules mm-hmm. I needed to have or something. Yeah. Because um, he taught a class on Palladio, and I'm thinking, now I'm like, God, I wish I'd taken that <laughs> class. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't. Um, but I don't know, I was a kid for whom. I was very good at school, yeah. and I had focused so much on getting into college. I don't know if I'd really thought about what you wanted to do. What happened after that, if that makes sense? Yeah. Um,
0: uh, but then, I mean, you ultimately did go. So, where did you go after? Where did you go after college?
2: So I did. I was one of the only people in my friend circle who did not have a job when I graduated. Wow. Um, and I ended up at the nonprofit I mentioned earlier, which right. was called the Architectural League of New York um and it's one of those crazy things i don't it couldn't even happen like this now because in our dining hall we had little announcements that were in you know just a plastic sleeve on the on every table Uh and towards the end of the year the career services would post jobs there oh wow and so i remember not knowing what i was going to do not only one without a job in my friend circle looking at that were you s- seeing were you, the job for the Architectural League posted.
0: Were you trepidatious when you didn't have a job and you saw your friends? Like, were your friends supportive about that or were they kind of dismissive?
2: They, I don't, they.
0: they didn't care? They were so focused on their own <laughs> okay. stuff,
2: I don't think they were paying attention okay. to it. I think it was, my parents were very supportive, but I think they were kind of surprised I didn't. Because I was always a planner and like had the next step figured out. And yeah. So I went home for a little bit. I think I was also just unbelievably burnt out. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I was on the crew team, had double practices every day, mm. classes, and I think I was just so tired that at that point I just needed like a month to recuperate yeah. and kind of figure out my next steps. But I do remember I applied for that and a couple other jobs in publishing. Um, and my dad would come home every day and like kind of he was since he'd been in the navy he'd yeah. be like, "If you're really having trouble figuring out what you want to do, have you thought about the navy? <laughs> oh <laughs> you know, yeah, here's wow. a brochure." Yeah. Um, but I ended up taking that job at the Architectural League, and by the end of the summer after college, I moved to New York.
0: Were your parents pretty supportive of what you wanted to do and, and were you, were kind of where your yes. interests were going?
2: Yeah, they They never had any explicit e- expectations of where I might end up or what I would, was doing. So. Do you have siblings? I do. I have a younger brother.
0: Okay, cool. So then um, when you get this job at mm-hmm. this architectural, what does an architectural nonprofit exactly do?
2: Well, so it was mostly lectures. There were Every single week, there were lectures m- largely of contemporary firms showcasing their work. But then it, it's, it no longer is there. It used to be in a building, um, a McKinney and White building, just like this mm-hmm. campus, called the Villard Houses that had an urban, what was called, the Urban Center. And it had a bunch of nonprofits related to the built environment and a bookstore that was architecture and urban planning related. Um, and they had an exhibition space there, too. So they did exhibitions related to the built environment there Um, and it was my introduction to contemporary architecture Mm. because as i'm sure you know most school surveys don't go they don't get quite up to the present it might get to like the 1980s or something and this i graduated in 1998. Mm. but you know the stuff from 2000 hadn't been uh, digested i think in a way that made its way into the survey so
0: is that something they intentionally do they try to not go up to the current time
2: if it's intentional or just
0: a time thing or something
2: time thing or also because surveys are often something where there's a little bit of a canon being presented Mm. and the most contemporary stuff that hasn't quite, the dust hasn't settled there. You know, they might bring out a few projects but you don't necessarily know in that moment, which will be the ones that 10 years from now, 20 years from now.
0: So that job, I mean, good experience in general. Oh, it was wonderful.
2: Yeah. You know, I moved to the city, not from a small town, having gone to a college in a small town. What not, was that like? That was a culture shock.
0: Where did you uh, end up in New York when you moved here?
2: A little studio apartment in what was then South Slope, which might be mm. Park Slope. Now. Okay. I think the boundaries have shifted yeah. and moved. Um, yeah, it was a... Horrible little apartment, but it was a great location. <laughs> I was right, um, you walk down the street one block to the Prospect Park Bandshell, and so every single summer I would just go out to the free concerts there. And oh, nice. Kind of took advantage of, because I was, it was not a hugely well-paying job, <laughs> nonprofit. Yeah. Um, so it was great to have that kind of, the free culture of the city.
0: Did you, uh, do you remember, do you recall any music that you saw or anything uh, like that?
2: Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I think Susan Tedeschi was oh, really? a band that I saw there. But I think before she'd gotten a little more famous, it was that kind of stuff. A lot of people that I now recognize and see, but who were maybe starting out in their nice. careers at
0: that point. What was New York at that time? I mean, was there still, uh, was there a, kind of like a vibrancy in the culture that you were seeing? I mean, you're seeing music, but yeah. um, like how in what ways was the city kind of different as you remember it?
2: I that's a good question. As much. Was
0: it like uh, dirtier or was it kind of edgier?
2: It doesn't feel, I mean, it's gotten a little more sanitized, <laughs> Yeah. but it, it didn't feel like it wasn't the 1970s, Yeah. Right. you know, like everyone's talking about crime increasing now, yeah. and they're like, it's back to like 1998 levels, and I remember thinking, I felt perfectly safe <laughs> <right for> in 1998 <laughs> yeah. New yeah. York, you know, like it, it wasn't. I, I didn't feel unsafe. I would take the subway at 3 a.m. You know, and it was no problem. You just took the subway at 3 a.m. Yeah. Um, so I think the ways it's changed are things like Soho has become mm. even more of a mall. Like that process had already started, but the now
0: it's changed The kind of gentrification thing?
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. And all the, you know, even the Upper West Side, I started grad school here at Columbia mm-hmm. in 2001 and so many of the little shops are now, you know, banks or some other chain that I think you know that has to do with the rents in the city.
0: But. Yeah, so um, so late '90s. So then yeah. you're at that job. So mm-hmm. I mean, how long? How long do you end up staying there? Three years. Wow. Yeah. And you said that it was a pretty good experience. Did you meet? Did you come into contact with architects that you thought were kind of inspirational and, and impactful?
2: Yeah. Um, there are two that I remember in particular. Um, I think the most important for me was Sugirobon. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with no. his work. He's a Japanese architect who's done a lot of work with disaster mm. um, victims. Wow! So he would create. He was looking for a quick, fairly inexpensive way to build housing and other necessities for th- things like um, earthquake zones or, mm. like I said, other than the natural disasters. And he builds them out of these like reinforced concrete tubes. Wow! And it was just amazing. I think in part because so much of those lectures i went to every single week as part of my job was to take tickets and to make things run smoothly yeah um and it wasn't a bad thing but so much was about aesthetics and his was one where it was combining these absolutely beautiful structures made out of the most humble materials but with this real social purpose of places like were kind of where i come back to with All my right. dissertation too where it's like He's using, he's creating these beautiful structures out of almost nothing for people where it's a real need.
0: Wow. So that's like the combination of the aesthetic but then also the practical application. Yeah. Does your role kind of change? Do you see it evolve in those three years at that job?
2: Yeah. I started out as the executive assistant and became the program assistant. So Mm -hmm. I was doing more work related to the programming. Um, And it was also, you know, it was great exposure because the board was like, really huge names in contemporary architecture and writing related to architecture and graphic design. And so it was just my job to take minutes, but you just got exposed to things kind of, I think, beyond what that rather humble title (laughs) might have implied.
0: Um, When you were there, I mean, was it kind of similar to college in terms of, um, you know, being here, liking what you're doing, but not necessarily seeing, I guess, the end of the line or or moving forward, moving ahead? Or were you kind of more... Um, planning and thinking about as you got more exposed to architecture, and also through you know your role, um, yeah. trying to see, seeing kind of a point B from point A.
2: No, I, I didn't have a point B. <laughs> yes. um, I, for better or worse, that's yeah. been kind of the way <laughs> my yeah. life has unfolded, where I've maybe been open to opportunities, but didn't have
0: a path necessarily.
2: A, a, a path set. Um, I think what it did for me, I'd been wondering if I wanted to be an architect, and that made it clear to me I did not why i think in large part just you had to have an incredible confidence that your vision was the right vision Mm. and that's just not my personality um i don't know it just felt like you needed to have this strength and sometimes even this ego Mm. to really succeed and make it happen and and I had friends who were architects, kind of low-level architects at big firms, and the hours were nuts. You know, it was like investment banking hours Mm -hmm. for a fraction of the pay, and I think, and they would work on competitions on the side, and I think it was also just realizing how much they wanted it and loved it. I didn't have that. I loved architecture, but I loved the history. I loved learning about it. I didn't feel that compulsion or that need to create it myself.
0: Are architects, uh, would you describe them as good collaborators or are they like a very fixed, uh, I guess what you're describing, like fixed on their vision and, uh, you know, maybe their ego to a degree and they want to, they want to put their stamp on everything.
2: Depends on the architect. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright, we have his collection in in Avery. Right. There was an ego there. Yeah. And a desire to put his stamp on everything. I won't say that's true for all Mm -hmm. architects, but. The big names, I think, yeah. maybe there. That's more true than not.
0: Um, for, for Frank, I mean, mm. um, because he is, uh, even people that don't know about architecture, yeah. pretty much everyone knows about him. Yeah. What do you think about him? Um, like, how did he hit the zeitgeist with his architecture? I mean, what was so unique about the way that he, I guess, defined the job and his stamp that yeah. it still resonated with so many people today, do you think?
2: Well, there's a couple of answers okay. for that. Part is that, I mean, some of what he was proposing with open plans and other architectural elements were pretty innovative, and even modernists in Europe would, you know, were looking at that at the kind of contemporaneously mm-hmm. and thinking about it. And there's an interplay happening between him and some of the modernists in Europe. But the other answer, the perhaps less sexy answer, yeah. is that. He had an eye for publicity his entire life. Oh, wow. And his wife, his was it his third wife, I believe, Olga Vanna, um, survived after him. And she and the foundation made it their life's work to promote his name mm. and to get his legacy out there. And there's still a foundation there doing that exact same thing. And so it's it's a combination both of that he was doing something innovative and there was this machine devoted right to keeping his name
0: alive interesting so then that is kind of i guess um uh a pro and a con i mean i guess it's a pro because a lot of people that may not know about architecture see that name and that legacy and that kind of lures them in but then also it is a little bit uh i don't know i don't know if it's necessarily um endorsing other more up-and-coming or other like lesser known architects because they're kind of being drowned out by his legacy but i guess it's a pro and con i mean that's not something you necessarily think about like i said
2: it's a little bit of both yeah one of the the architect he referred to as Liebermaster mm. <laughs> you know, like
0: yeah
2: h- had a real place in I think his mythology of himself as Louis Sullivan, who designed absolutely stunning, you know, buildings in every architecture test book mm-hmm. and died penniless. Yeah. You know, but didn't have that machine to you know, beyond no, someone like same. Wright who did help to publicize his name. So it's it's n- I don't know if it's good or bad. It's yeah. uh, yeah. Rea- reality <laughs> sure
0: so then after that um job i mean do you kind of start grad school immediately after or do you take a break or what do you do
2: no, i what i the way in which i thought about my trajectory was i'm not sure i want to go to grad school mm. but it seems like the types of jobs i want at museums at other nonprofits, require more than a ba
0: what kind of jobs were those
2: it was i was you know excited about curatorial jobs and it's a very different thing in a museum than in a um than in a library but there's some overlap um or working at a higher level at the kind of institution or the nonprofit i was at Mm. you know it just felt like i needed more education in order to be able to do that and so i thought well i'll give grad school a try yeah i'll regret it if i don't even though I don't know what it's like in your program, but for art history, the understanding is that you will become a professor. Mm. I think that's changing as the job market has changed. But when I started in 2001, nobody was thinking about anything but becoming a professor. And so I knew I didn't necessarily want to be one. And that was a different path think or it's somewhat lonely sometimes trajectory.
0: You didn't have aspirations to teach? No. What do you think uh what do you think that's about? You just didn't want to do it?
2: No, I actually it was a part I was better at. Yeah? Yeah. Um especially smaller groups. I was very good, I think, at that. But it wasn't easy for me. Mm. I don't know I had I did, just didn't love like the I had a bit of anxiety about standing up in front of two hundred people and no. I also I don't felt that it was this treadmill of preparing and then teaching and preparing and right. teaching. And I was not comfortable without being fully prepared. And I realized that you often couldn't be fully prepared. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure it would have gotten easier over time. But when I discovered the library work, it felt like I get to do a lot of that, be exposed to those ideas, right. get all of that, Without having the anxiety about having to perform on that kind of pace and scale, and and I think similar to architects and you know feeling the need to to produce something, I I've written a few things. Yeah. But the pressure to publish too, it was like it just felt like there there, there isn't this deep compelling need for me to put my voice out there that <laughs> bit, you know so. Yeah. Why don't I focus on the parts of the job that I really love and the access to the materials that I really love rather than trying to force myself to be a professor because that's what's expected when you get a Ph.D.
0: Interesting. Yeah, yeah definitely. Okay, so then um, so you you end up at Columbia mm-hmm. for a Ph.D. Yeah. Um, what month is that in 2001?
2: September 2001.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Tough it times. Was,
2: it was... It was Paradoxically easier for me than for any of my classmates, I believe. In because what way? Almost everyone was completely new to the city. They'd been there a week or two and 9-11 happened. Yeah. They had no memory, nothing to draw on from before that time. Whereas for me, I'd been living in the city for three years. I knew it, I, it wasn't my only point of reference. I think it, I. I, I won't say that this is Definitely true. Yeah. But only about half of my incoming class for my PhD finished. Hmm. And I would not be surprised if how difficult that first year was, had yeah. something to do with why we had so much attrition.
0: Were you uh, still living in Park Slope during that time?
2: No, I had moved up to, um, there's a graduate student oh. dorm on 110th. Mostly because I didn't want to be commuting an hour yeah. each way just to get to class and to use the library. So,
0: um, so what, I mean, what was the uh, what was the city like during that time in your experience?
2: The actual day or around the that? day and then yeah. surrounding the days. The day was odd. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I I'm, imagine you weren't here. Then. I wasn't here. Um, it was a beautiful day. Gorgeous blue skies, white yeah. clouds, or you know, just perfect fall day, and when. We all went to class. Like halfway through the day, all classes got canceled. And everyone seemed to be out on the street, but not knowing quite what to do with themselves. And because traffic had been, I don't know, it was just quiet. Oh, wow. Like super, super quiet, despite all the people. Maybe there were fewer cars, or I don't know. I remember going for a walk in Central Park. I remember the song that was playing. What was it? It was Five for Fighting. Oh, (laughs) wow. Superman, or something along that. Yeah. And I remember that I could smell the towers burning in Central Park. Wow. So every once in a while I get that s- it's like that, you know, you have a very yeah. strong memory flashback mm-hmm. because I smell that kind of chemical smell of burning of building yeah. materials and it puts Triggers. me right back yeah. to being on the corner of Morningside <laughs> Drive wow. and and smelling that smell wafting up from lower Manhattan.
0: Wow. Um, yeah. well I mean that yeah, that sounds terrible. So then um, I guess in the you know days and weeks and months, I mean, I know that the city was um, in a really tough shape and yeah. trying to find all those bodies that were basically buried in this rubble. Um, yeah. What was the I guess what was the experience? I mean, did your did your doctoral study kind of continue in in spite of that, out of necessity, or what happened?
2: Yeah, I mean, that first day of classes were canceled and then yeah. things just went right back to.
0: I mean, whatever Regular normal class means, yeah.
2: schedules, yeah. I think the the way in which it probably affected people was there was real anxiety about things mm-hmm. like taking the subway for some folks oh, yeah. for a while or just wondering if another attack was going to happen. Sure. And so just, I think, feeling slightly unsafe and uncertain. Mm-hmm. Also not knowing if we were heading into war. Yeah. And what that would look like and what that would mean. You know, I think it's hard sometimes to put yourself back in that place after all that's happened since then
0: do you see parallels between that and what happened over the what's happened over the past couple of years in terms of the city's um feeling and uh, just their kind of demeanor around things
2: i don't know i i think it's um you mean in terms of covid yeah yeah. maybe a little bit um i think you know New York at all? They eventually just picked themselves. Yeah, up and right. Go what else can business. you do? Yeah. yeah. And so I think it was kind of like after 9/11, where it felt like the rest of the country was still freaking out, and mm-hmm. we were heading towards war. Yeah. But like every New Yorker I knew didn't want to do it, and it was where it had happened. Yeah. I, not quite the same thing right. with COVID, sure. but like it had been the early epicenter. And we felt like, you know, you figured out how to live with it and deal with it to the best of your ability. Yeah. And things were different elsewhere.
0: So. um, So, wow, that was kind of a rude awakening into your Ph.D. program. Um, Yeah. So uh, in terms of that, I mean, um, because I know that the German Garden City movement was Mm -hmm. definitely a focus. I mean, that's what you wrote your dissertation about. Um, What what led to that? I mean, what were some of the, um, the tenants or some of the mentorship that you received in order to eventually get to that? focus
2: um part of it was accidental again Mm. in that as part of the art history program you have to learn to at least read french and german oh wow! everyone does in order to get your degree you have to pass language tests interesting and i had spanish so i didn't think the french would be that difficult yeah but the german worried me yeah and so, bef- in between the architectural league and starting grad school, I took a month and went to Germany and just began some like intensive language classes at the Goethe Institute. And they had tours mm-hmm. of the city and of cultural things around the city. And they took me to some of Bruno Taut's nineteen twenties, um, Siedlung and the settlements, the housing mm-hmm. settlements. And they were, I mean, just breathtaking. They were so beautiful and boldly, brightly colored. Mm. And it wasn't necessarily quite accurate the way they described them. It wasn't like public housing the way we think of here, but it was often publicly funded to some degree or had some support from the municipality. And looking at that and then thinking about the public housing I knew in New York City, It was just this disconnect day, I yeah. couldn't quite bridge. And so I just wanted to learn more. Um, and it, it was one of those things where I just assumed, because it kept coming up in my studies probably because I was interested in it, that of course something had been written on this movement.
1: Yeah. And
2: that it had in terms of the English movement that spawned the German one. Um, But then when I got to my dissertation phase and had written a couple of related papers on urbanism throughout the coursework um, phase, I realized that there was no English language text on anything that had happened in Germany related to this movement.
0: Interesting. And that's in the German Garden City movement. I mean, Ebenezer Howard, he's the, is he the sort of mastermind behind that?
2: In England, yeah. Yeah, Um, And so he was not an architect, not a planner, he was a, uh, shorthand writer who worked for parliament who has kind of an autodidact and read a lot uh, oh, okay. and had this vision for a different society that could be based i don't know how n- much you know about the garden city movement but it's it's an aesthetic movement to a degree but it's based on communal land mm-hmm. and right. making sure that all of the increases in value that result from land can be spread among everyone everybody yeah um, and so it was kind of this, often the aesthetic gets separated out, and that's what gets built. You get this kind of you know beautiful little house with a garden at the edge of a city. Yeah. But for him, it was a coherent social right. movement. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting what your question was. But in Germany, they, they read him. They, they actually yeah. went to England. They were exposed to that. But there was a similar kind of movement for land nationalization and taxation and all of that that was happening simultaneously in right. Germany, which is part of the reason I think that it found such a foothold there.
0: So it was really kind of land, because I know he wrote the book Tomorrow, right? Yeah. So th- it was really kind of, uh, the purpose was to, I guess, give maybe the working class an alternative to, um, you know, more uh, kind of the unhealthy conditions that they were kind of faced with every yeah. day. And almost was it almost combining like a town and the country mm-hmm. with the city?
2: Yeah, so it was called... like. He terms it the marriage of the mm. town and country. And it was exactly what you're saying, trying yep. to give people a better environment. Um, and it's interesting, like a lot of the modernists thinking that the surroundings will help them get to an also a better moral and cultural place. So yep. there's that it's kind of chicken and egg, what comes first? Do you right. have to have the culture in order to have the town? Or can the town help shape the culture you eventually want?
0: And um, the campfires, right? Is that how you pronounce it? The those um, the uh, cousins that you oh uh, the Kampfmeiers yeah, yeah Kampfmeiers yeah. yeah what was what were their role what was their role in um in I guess shaping or cultivating this movement
2: so they had been involved in some related turn of the century aesthetic movements in in Berlin mm-hmm. um, and they labeled themselves anarcho-socialists although it's more maybe perhaps a paternalistic okay <laughs> um, kind of socialism but they were f- Bernard Kompfmeyer was friends with, for example, Peter Kropotkin, who was a Russian expat anarcho-socialist living in England that um, Ebenezer Howard had also had some exposure to. And so like that's the kind of ways in which these two movements end up dovetailing. And then Howard and others found um, an organization, and they offer tours. And so Mm -hmm. Kompfmeyer's go to see some of the industrial settlements in Letchworth, which was the first Garden City that was founded, Um, and... It dovetails with a lot of trends Mm -hmm. in german culture at the time but they come back they help to start the central organization and help to they go do lectures and tours in cities all across germany and then found help found individual um, movements or organizations in each of the major cities and so it's a strange combination of there's a central organization that's mostly doing propaganda work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. And then they help found local organizations that are actually trying to build garden cities. So
0: And you you actually spent time with them, right? I mean, didn't you go to their house?
2: I, w- I met his, the granddaughter. Yeah. Yeah. So what Uta. was
0: what was that like?
2: It was one of the again a crazy, crazy coincidental hmm. thing. I had gotten in touch with someone who had written a German dissertation that didn't look at the entire movement, but looked at, I think, um, Hellerau, the most famous example, and mm. you know, maybe one or two others. And through just asking them for advice on how I should proceed, somewhere along the way, someone put me in touch with the family. And then when I went to Frankfurt to do some research, I found an apartment. Yeah. And it turned out that she lived one street over. <laughs> wow. And so she was the unofficial historian of her family and was very proud of her grandfather's legacy and had all of this family history in her attic. Wow! And she had me over for tea a lot. I stayed with her sometimes when I was in between apartments because I had to go to different cities for my dissertation. Um, And she would let me take boxes back to my apartment to look at on my own and then I'd bring them it's not a traditional archival scenario
0: that's incredible
2: I still talk to her occasionally not as frequently as I would like because my German has (laughs) I'm not using it as often as I was then yeah Um, tough language to learn my parents met her wow yeah
0: interesting so that was uh, meeting with her and corresponding with her kind of was that the key to unlocking something that you wouldn't have been able to do without her
2: yeah, I mean, I think what it was most helpful for, were there were certain letters I got access to that wouldn't mm. have been anywhere else, you know, so that kind of historical archival component. Yeah. But also she had actually lived, I think, in um, the one outside oh my god, all of a sudden I'm blinking. I'm yeah. fried. Um, it was near Monheim. Karlsruhe. Okay. The, the garden city in Karlsruhe. Um, and she still had some family friends there, so we drove down and I met her and I got to, s- like often you can't get inside the houses because yeah. people are still living in them. Mm-hmm. But I had tea with someone who was still living in one of wow. the original, you know. so it was that kind of, sometimes atmospheric where you just, it helps you better understand what it was like to actually live in or be inside some of these buildings and you can't point to a specific passage in your dissertation that it affected, but it definitely affected. Right kind of my overall approach and view to things.
0: Are there German, uh, are there kind of elements of the German garden city movement? Are there garden cities in the US, like in New York? Are there sort of, um, whether it's, um, I don't know, just how some cities tend to like plan or, or do you see any resemblance of or resonance of that here?
2: Um, yes and no. Mm-hmm. There was a great interest in it slightly later, mostly in the 20s, 1920s, um, and it was taken up by folks who were involved with like the Regional Plan Association and all of that, and there's a particular um, part of a suburban complex in New Jersey called Radburn mm-hmm. where they were really, really influenced by the Garden City ideas. I think the ways in which it was really different is that all of the english and german ones that i looked at had workers housing oh uh. and here in the united states they tended to be these actually sometimes quite large suburban villas their houses Mm -hmm. so that workers component of it seemed you know it was never the poorest of the poor even in germany and england but it that just seemed to have been in many ways eliminated once it got to the united states um so there was some of the aesthetic components of things that you would see in those garden cities but the other big thing was just that communal property was a no start, like no mm. go. It just was not going to fly in the United yeah. States. And so, whether you think there are some components of Garden City legacy here, there certainly are. Mm-hmm. But if you think of the movement,
0: the as communal, a whole, yeah, that no.
2: that didn't happen for the most part here.
0: So, in terms of that, I mean, uh, so you do your PhD at yeah. Columbia. Where do you go after that?
2: So I was not quite finished with my PhD. And I had gotten that internship I mentioned earlier where I was doing some archival processing, and I was about Uh to run out of funding because I was slow Mm. and because everything I had to read was in German. (laughs) (laughs) And so that also slowed me down a little bit. Um, And the archivist, the former archivist Janet Parks, knew I was looking for a job. And on some professional listserv, she saw Syracuse University is looking for an architectural historian, some, arch, you know, some library experience a plus, but not necessary yeah. to be a project manager on their Mar- Marcel Breuer digital archive. Right. And so I applied, then I got the job, and I had a both wonderful and hellish year or two where I was trying to get up at five to write my dissertation before going to work all day. Yeah. Um, but I got that job there, and then it kind of solidified that libraries really were where I wanted to be. Um, and after that, I ended up applying for the curator position of our books here, and so made my way back here.
0: So you ended up moving upstate for that, I assume? Yeah. Um, what was that experience? Did that kind of take you back to your rural Pennsylvania roots, or was it closer to the 116th, or oh, whatever, 110th experience that you had over here?
2: It was closer to the suburban roots, and Okay. if I'm going to be honest, Yeah. I may have cried at <laughs> really? the thought of moving there. Wow. Just because you know, I'd lived... In New York for ten years at that point. Wow. And that yeah. was what I was used to. It was so vibrant. And I remember moving to Syracuse or going for my interview. And you know, even in the middle of summer there's people on campus here. Yeah. And I showed up for my interview, checked into the hotel, which was like literally on campus. And I walked around and there was not a soul. I was the only person there. And there was like one restaurant. I didn't have a car and you have to drive everywhere there. And there was one restaurant open. It was like the only place I could get dinner that night. And so you know, it wasn't that I was I was so excited about the job, but I was realizing just how difficult that transition was going to be. Or when I first moved there, I get there and I'm like, it's Sunday, I'm gonna go explore downtown and everything in downtown is locked because there really isn't anyone living there, and mm. people are only there for College? jobs, yeah. like, like business reasons downtown. Mm. And so there's not a single thing open in the entire downtown. And I'm just wandering through this deserted th- place yeah. with nobody there. And I thought, oh, god, what have I gotten myself into? I grew to appreciate a lot of Syracuse, but it was, I think, it wasn't that I was crying because I had to move there, but it was just like this, like, oh, my God, this is going to be such a culture shock. It's so different from what I've um, been used to.
0: Did you, um, but what about the subject matter? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Marcel Brewer, I think he has kind of a, he has kind of a polarized reputation in some cases, right? I mean, he he was the brutalist guy. Later in his career, yeah. yeah. Because I know that he designed that, um, housing and urban development mm-hmm. building and a lot of people don't, they kind of don't like it. I yeah. don't know.
2: I, it's of a moment yeah. where it's not the only building. Yeah. Where it's probably not as, it hasn't aged well and it's probably not a great place to work um, just in terms of, I mean, a lot of these modernists, you know, air conditioning and other things weren't oh. necessarily a part of it and they had all these like Marcel Breuer had the same thing, like grand plans for these bris soleil to help, you know, minimize the effect of sun inside their oh, glass okay. tower kind of yeah. thing that didn't work, and then it would get to be like ninety-five degrees inside mm. the glass, you know, all yeah. off glassed-in offices. And yeah. so, I mean, I think, yeah, it's it's a problem not only with his architecture of that time.
0: Yeah, but overall, would you describe that as a as a um, good experience in terms of what you learned, what you picked oh, yeah. up?
2: Yeah. Um, it was a crash course in library science in some respects. You know, The first thing they had me do was, you need to figure out the metadata schema and build a relational database, Wow! <laughs> or you come up with the structure for it. And I remember <laughs> going back to my office and thinking, <laughs> I need to look up nearly every yeah. single word in that sentence. Yeah. I do not know what they're talking about. Yeah. But I did it. And it's work that because digital projects become a big part of a lot of library work now, even in special collections. It's a foundation that was extraordinarily helpful, and is extraordinarily helpful in my current job.
0: And then you came to Columbia. Yeah. Back to Columbia. Yeah. So I know you've curated, um, you know, several exhibits. Small here. ones. Yeah. Yeah, because there was that um, that Asia Downing one, um, right? Yeah. That And it was like, yeah, so that one, and then also that um, McKim Mead, that one too, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which which I think they've designed, having to design a lot of Columbia, mm-hmm. a lot of the Columbia campus. Yeah. So I just
2: want to be clear. The A.J. Downing one was actually a professor in the HP program. Mm. I, I facilitated that. I did not right. curate that one. Wh-
0: what exactly does it mean um, to curate an exhibit? And what's, that, what's the distinction? Like, What does that really entail?
2: You mean in terms of like the difference between the library curation and exhibit curation? Um, well,
0: curation in general.
2: Okay. I mean, I think curation in general is a fancy way of saying selection in some mm-hmm. respects. Yeah. I mean, in the library... What I do as a curator is decide what comes into the collection mm-hmm. and shape where the collection goes. We can't purchase everything, and so there has to be some parameter for what you decide to collect. Yeah. And it's a similar thing in exhibitions. You know, you have an argument you're trying to make. Um, at least for architecture, it often tends to be a very visual argument. You have to tell that story not through words but through objects right. and what they can relay. And so. It's a similar thing. It's like, you have an argument. How do you use the objects to make your argument and to reveal things to the audience? Wow. Interesting. It's kind of fun. It's a puzzle sometimes. (laughs) Is it? Yeah. To
0: try to figure out what um, what combination of elements is going to most spark the audience? What's really the impetus behind those? Is it to kind of disseminate the legacies of these guys or is it to kind of, I don't know, blow the public's mind?
2: It's a little bit of both, yeah. probably, and not so much disseminate the l- legacies as just, you know, this like A.J. Downing was a formative influence on American architecture that probably not that many people know about, mm-hmm. you know, really important in terms of s- housing, um, suburban housing and the suburbanization of America, for example. And so kind of bringing out those themes and showing the way they relate to contemporary um, needs and problems, I think, is probably one of the major things we do. But then also, um, there is a little bit of just that wow factor, because this, these exhibitions are all in the reading room. And so the people who see them, because it's usually a locked room, are either going to, sometimes in pre-COVID times, people could walk in f- off the street and see them. That would be no problem. Um, but it was people who came for research appointments. It was undergrads who would see that, and we would probably explain it. What there was in the exhibit case is a brief moment when they came in for a class completely unrelated to mm. that. And so there's a little bit of just trying to showcase what we have. Yeah. Trying to, you know, you never know which of those undergrads is going to see that, get excited just like I did, and, it, you know, end up, I mean, it's a bit grandiose, but like end up maybe changing, they yeah. take a different class sure. or they end up on a path slightly that they didn't expect because they had either a class and. In the archives or rare books, or got exposed to some material that, I mean, I don't know if they're anything like me. They didn't know this stuff existed when they entered college.
0: So. Yeah, no, I don't think it's grandiose at all. I think it's very um, relevant, and I think um, the role that you have um, has so much. Uh, influence and you know power in terms of shaping people's lives Um, especially at you know at Columbia I know you're humble about it but uh, (laughs) it's um, especially you know the vast size of it in terms of the collections um, particularly the special collections and the rare books and archives Um, and so I really uh, uh, appreciate that you're championing this this legacy of um, this very kind of precious um, and um, important art and work um, and I really appreciated talking with you thank you thank you so much